that ideal customer profile. So we have 10 characteristics on what looks like a good customer. If they don't fit those, they don't go into the funnel. And constantly making sure that we're looking. And whilst that isn't a measure, it's actually something that we use to measure the quality of our pipeline. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution Show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Okay, welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I'm your host, Alex Thuma. Uh, CEO and founder of SaaStock, uh, delighted to be joined today by Zandra Moore, who is the CEO and founder of Pan Intelligence. Welcome, Zandra. Thank you very much, Alex. Yeah, good, to, good to have you on the show. I think last time I saw you was at a, a, a different SaaS conference. It wasn't SaaStock. Um, it was clearly obviously not as, uh, 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 as good as SaaStock, but no, I, 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 shouldn't, I, I shouldn't say that. But, um, but it was good to see you in London, but you're not uh, based in London. You are in the UK. Where, where are you calling in from? Uh, so we're based in Leeds. Um, that's where most of our team are, but we're also based over in uh, North America in Boston. Okay, very cool. And today uh, in Leeds. <laughs> today, today in Leeds. Uh, quick, <laughs> quick fun fact, irrelevant uh, fact. Um, I got into Leeds Metropolitan University, but never attended. Uh, I, I decided not to go to uh, to university, so I could oh. I could have been a Leeds resident. Uh, you missed out. Knows? It's I beautiful missed, city. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, good stuff, but Sandra, um, appreciate you coming on the podcast. For those that do not know you, um, tell us a little bit about who is Sandra Moore. Uh, so thank you very much, Alex. So I'm a CEO and co-founder of uh, data analytics business called Pan Intelligence. We'll talk a bit more about that, but uh, Leeds last born and bred, um, a mum of two and uh, a CEO and, and, and founder for the first time in this business. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a, a passionate SaaS and software entrepreneur. I've been in software my whole career. So um, I am definitely peddling the wheels of this industry uh, for some time now, but, but loving the founder and, and CEO journey. Yeah, I had a, a quick sort of refresh. I know like we, 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 we kind of know each other. We've had like fleeting conversations. Um, I wouldn't say we know each other like super well. So I had a quick look on LinkedIn as a re- refresher before, seeing that you've been a founder of Pan Intelligence for 13 years. Is, is that correct? It is, yeah. And, and gosh, when you say it like that, I'm a bit terrified at how long that sounds. But um, yeah, most startups are not startups, right? You've been peddling for a while. But yes, uh, 13 years um, when we first, uh, uh, we actually spun out from another business. We, we'd been building this product inside another company and they were acquired and, and we knew we had more to do. So we essentially offered to buy the IP, myself and my co-founder, uh, Ken Miller, and uh, spun the business out in 2014. But we, we had a very, very small handful of customers and some IP, but um, literally carried a server across a car park into uh, another building and squatted in somebody else's building until we could get ourselves set up properly but yeah that was the start really in 2014. Wow uh, amazing and that that obviously neatly leads into the 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 segue of the the founding story so there's another co-founder did you say Camilla is that right? No, Ken Miller. Ken, Ken <laughs> Miller, Miller, sorry. Although not, I'm not, sure he would be mine calling Camilla. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's, I mean, that, that's what I'll call him for now. But Ken, uh, Ken Miller, uh, and, and you and Ken carried a server over. You, you spun it out from a, a different company. Like, but I, I guess the question is kind of like, why, why did you do that? Like, why did you want to really kind of build this, this business? And uh, tell us a little bit, you know, about those early days. 
Yeah, so I've been, like I say, in software for my whole career. My mum was an early sort of pioneer in tech, although never had a piece of the pie. She'd been involved in the first internet uh, service provider in the north called Planet Online, free server, the first email service, free email service, and was selling things like um, AIP, which was the early dawn of the cloud advanced infrastructure division. So I'd been brought up in the tech industry from a very young age. So I'd always wanted to be in tech. I just wanted to be with mum. To be, uh, to be really honest with you. Um, but I'd worked in software um, and got myself up to a sort of director level and been involved and, and helped exit a couple of um, small startups. And I was always looking for a business that I could um, grow for myself and with others and, and be a founder of. Um, so when I had my children, um, gosh, 16 years ago now, that was the tipping point for me to, to move out from employment into self-employment. And I started my first business, which was a, a, a SaaS consultancy, actually helping SaaS vendors get their products to market. And that's where I stumbled across um, Ken Miller, uh, or Camilla, as I'm affectionately calling him from now on, um, who was building this you know, really great piece of technology, um, a data analytics product inside a fintech, and really solving a very hard problem, which is being able to do data insights without moving data. And in fintechs, let's be honest with you, they, they've got huge amounts of data. And having worked in the, the SaaS and software sector for such a long time and all the apps and products I worked with, they all had the same problem, that they were building these brilliant systems, but they were sort of collecting all this data. It was locked away in the cloud and their customers were frustrated. They couldn't get access to the value of that data. And it was an inherent problem I saw in all of the businesses I worked with. So when I met Ken and saw what he was doing and able to kind of allow people to draw data out of these cloud-based systems, but not have to move that data so it could stay in those applications, that data value could stay at source but allow users to 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 get to that data I was like this is solving a real problem that I understand so I started consulting for the business and then we had the opportunity to buy the IP I'd helped get their first customers help them get their product to market it was the obvious choice for me this was the business that I understood and the co-founder Ken and myself we just had a a really good mix of strengths and skills so I think it was um it was a, a it was I was always looking <laughs> and and this was this was the this was the right fit for me um so yeah it was a, it was an obvious choice and I've been geared up for putting money aside to to, to you know either start my own or, or or buy in and and this was a management buyout buying the IP which is what we did and I guess kind of like fast forward to now and speaking of data, <clears throat> you know, what data can you share uh, about where Pan Intelligence is and uh, the, the business? Yeah. So when we did the management buyout, there were six of us that, that literally carried the server across the car park and we cheapened them out of the business. And at the time we had a handful of customers and, and no more than a, a, a couple of hundred thousand pounds worth of revenue. And that wasn't all recurring either. There was quite a bit of consultancy in that at the time. Um Roll forward to 2019 when we did our Series A, we'd got ourselves up to um, just over 20 people. Um, we were about 75% recurring revenue. We're just over that kind of 1 million uh, ARR mark. And we were able to go and do a fundraise to really help accelerate our growth development in the product to make sure it was um, ready for international expansion. And that was a lot to do with our cloud infrastructure but also building, you know, out teams and, and, and getting ourselves sort of landed in North America. So we raised uh, 4.5 million in 2019 uh, through private equity VCT as well as some venture capital. There was a bit of secondary in that actually that went to some of our original sort of seed investors in our on our first kind of management buyout. Um, 
And now we're at um, just over 40 people. Um, uh, 50% of our new business comes from North America. We've really kind of landed overseas. Um, and we've absolutely narrowed in on the, a very specific addressable market, which is quite a core pivot for us in uh, when we did the, the Series A, part of what we needed the investment for, which was moving to this um, you know, monthly recurring only revenue model working with just SaaS vendors on embedded analytics. Um, and, and we were able to do that transition with the help of that growth capital. Uh, and now we're 97% recurring revenue as a business. Um, we are that, um, uh, that SaaS business that we have built out um, is growing at 60%. And, and you know, we're in, a, we're in a good place as a business right now. Very cool. Congrats. Uh, congrats on that. And, and actually, I mean, this wasn't one of the, the original questions, but I was sort of reflecting, I think like the first time that we got connected, it, I, I believe it was uh, AWS and our contacts at AWS who, who, who kind of put you guys kind of forward to probably speak at, uh, at one of our events. Uh, and again, this is not a plug for AWS. We're not affiliated. They are a customer um, uh, of SASDOC. Uh, uh, but like, uh, I guess, is that like a, a, a benefit for those startups listening when you're kind of like choosing so like vendors in terms of like, you know, the platforms that you're, uh, I, I guess, building the infrastructure on, um, how maybe they go over and above the actual technology that, that you use. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, partnerships, strategic technology partnerships can be really important to uh, ensuring that in the market people um, uh, have a sense of your credibility. So if you can be on an AWS marketplace and they as a strategic partner are prepared to endorse you and invite you to their panels and and do shared kind of content and and marketing with you that really does help with that sort of confidence uh, in the market in, in in you as a vendor so those technology partnerships strategic partnerships will really help you when you're sort of in those early stages and you're relatively unknown so definitely choosing a you know a, a technology partner, whether that's a, a cloud provider or it could be you know a database provider like Snowflake. We're also a strategic partner of ours, and we also have partners in the what I'd call ETL space. So the people that help you to move the data, um, those being in those ecosystems do really really help in accelerating your ability to kind of build your brand in market and the confidence in, in you as a vendor. As far as other than that, actually we we get loads of credits from AWS, which have helped to kind of um, support the funding of our development, um, which has been really helpful in accelerating that. And also just the fact that you can learn a lot by being in these sort of rooms with AWS. Their customers are, are customers that we have or aspire to have. So it really does help us with our go-to-market as well. Very cool. And, and we, we were also speaking a, a few weeks back um, uh, around the, the SASL founder membership and the 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 conversation kind of led to, uh, I guess, um, you, you know, I guess, maybe, uh, how do we sort of help and how you potentially, and you, you're willing to help, like, you know, get more uh, female members uh, in the SAS founder membership, but just in general, um, at the top in SAS, you know, there uh, are not as many uh, female founders, you know, as there are men. Uh, and I guess kind of the questions, are, and if you look at like the Cloud 100, I don't have loads of data points on this, and I probably should have more, uh, given I guess the position that I'm in. But you look at the Forbes Cloud 100, and it's something that we look at, you know, kind of each year. Um, I think there's three female founders or CEOs, you know, in the top 100, and, and the 97 men. Right? So what, what do you think is the the issue like within SaaS, like in in general, there 
what can be done about it? Uh, I know you're part of like a, a number of groups, and what do you think, like again, like uh, Sastock and you know myself, and, and you know we can do to to help this? Uh, you know, uh, so yeah, I guess a few questions there. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's it's an interesting challenge, one that I think the, the industry's been wrestling with for some time. We're pretty much flatlined at seventeen percent of. Um, roles in the SaaS sector or in technology are held by women. So we do have fundamentally a pipeline issue. And the first question to me is you're not going to have enough representation at the top if we, we are, we're not bringing people in through through the pipeline. So the question then goes into, well, why are women and, and girls not choosing technology as a sector to go and work in? And, and, and you can stem that back, and, and, and pardon the pun, but um, you can literally stem that back to the STEM in, in education and, the, you know, the teachers that are teaching the subject and, and, and also the role models that these young people see out there in the world. You ask any young person to name uh, a technology leader, or, um, they, they will name Jeff Bezos, they'll, they'll name Elon Musk, they'll name men. So we, we have a challenge really in in visible role models, but also in the education system, not having teachers that are female or or being able to, to attract young girls into those subjects and make those subjects feel like they're, they're for them. So there's a, there's a pipeline challenge here, which I think all SaaS companies, we work with a company called Generation and, um, uh, and a company called Ahead Partnership, which help us to get into schools as women in this, the industry and talk to them before they make their choices around options so that they actually can see someone and, and 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 see that actually this could be a place for them and they could have an exciting career in the industry so that's the first thing i think as businesses in the industry we need to take more responsibility for kind of role modeling and, and encouraging more diversity into our pipelines the other challenge we've got as we attract um women and girls in is we always have some challenge around people exiting the workforce for caring responsibilities and, and we know that for women that's probably having children and they also take more responsibility for care for parents and others as well. So making sure that those flexible arrangements for people to continue to work so they don't step out of an industry and feel they can't go back in is really important. Gosh, tech moves at a pace that a lot of sectors can't keep up with and people can feel that they've very much fallen out of the loop if they're out of it for any amount of time. So making sure we're keeping those people that end up stepping out for whatever reasons, but certainly for women, for caring responsibilities, to keep them involved and engaged so that they can come back in and move up through the pipeline. So we've got to address that point. We've also got to make sure that our job descriptions and our ads and the, the roles that we're putting out into market actually appeal to everybody. And, you know, it's a common statistic that probably people have heard many times, but and this is a very gross generalisation, forgive me, but um, it, it is it is out there in the public domain that, that if when men apply for a role, um, they're going to look down the list of requirements and if they can do 20% of it, they'll probably apply. Women will look down a job description and if they can't do 80 to 100% of it, they probably won't. Now, I'm not going to psychoanalyse the reasons for that, but we've got to be careful that we're, we're making sure that, that those roles. And then lastly, and, and you can see that I can talk on this forever and I'm apologies because it's probably one of my passion subjects really, but we do have an issue with investment. So when women do make it into those roles as female founders, if we get them through the pipeline and retain them, great, we've solved part of the problem. We've got to make sure that those female founders receive investment. So 1p um, in every pound of capital raised in the UK goes to female founders. And yet businesses are being started by women at a rate of 30%. 
of the total. So women are starting businesses, but they're not actually raising capital. Now, there are some reasons where maybe women don't have the same, and in some cases saying risk appetite as men, that's one reason, but it's not really the main reason. When we've looked at it in my role as um, on the government task force for women-led high growth enterprises, when we've looked at the problem, one of the biggest problems is actually the investment community is grossly underrepresented from a female um, decision maker in those IC boards being able to understand and recognise that the women that are pitching to them, they might, that one, they understand the problem, because <laughs> sometimes women are pitching businesses where they intuitively understand the problem. So if the IC boards don't have women on them, then they may not understand the problem. Um, secondly, people tend to, human nature, uh, buy and invest in things that they recognise and that are familiar or comfortable to them. So uh, we need more women in the decision-making process um, when it comes to investing in female-founded businesses. So it's a complex issue. There are lots of factors to it, but they're well understood, well documented. There's lots of amazing organisations that are talking about how you can do this. But, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for women right now. I think there's a lot of attention on female founders and encouraging them through. So if you are a female founder, there's never been a better time to go out and raise money and never better time to raise your profile because people want to find those role models and amplify them um, because we know it's important. And, and if you are, um, and thanks for sharing that, a, a female founder, um, I think you're part of a couple of like female founders, sort of like only groups. And you know, would you advise that it's beneficial to to kind of join these and uh, I, I guess build that network, right, of, of other female founders? Yeah. So as as a female founder, what can you do as opposed to what can the industry do? Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's the right thing to say, and, and you're spot on. Um, there's never been again more um, female orientated groups. Um, I, I'm a, a big fan of mixed groups. I think this is a shared problem. We all need to lean into it together. I don't think we should just have female groups and male groups. But actually, if you're trying to build your confidence and understand a problem, maybe you will feel more comfortable in those groups to start with. And that's a safe place for you to land, understand how you can overcome some of these barriers, which are just systemic. Um, and then broaden yourself out into those mixed groups. But absolutely, female founder groups can be a really great place to start to, to help you to build the confidence to kind of lean into maybe some of these areas like raising investment, um, like dealing with kind of uh, how you run a board, uh, how you scale a business, maybe more open to sharing that in, in groups where there's more people like you. So, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Lean in Leeds um, is a, a network that I run in here. We've got 1,200 members in Leeds alone, which is amazing. Um, but then I'm also involved in other kind of growth tech groups and other sort of female founder initiatives. There's lots out there. Just go and look. And they're brilliant spaces, um, really brilliant spaces. So I, um, thanks for sharing that. And also, like, we'd love to carry on the conversation. You, you know, maybe it's a whole separate other uh, podcast, but also uh, post the, the podcast, see what more we can do at Sastock and uh, within the Sastock founder membership. And so I know that um, something we wanted to speak about today, yourself specifically, the six secrets of SaaS success. So I love secrets. That's <laughs> a right mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> there's, uh, there's a lot of S's there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight S's uh, in what I just said. So... Luckily, I got through that uh, well, just about. Um, and um, yeah, I love people spilling secrets and sharing this sort of thing. Um, so let's go through this. Like I think, like one one step uh, at a time. So um, I, I guess, kind of like uh, maybe even before we go uh, uh, through this, like why why do we think they're 
uh, maybe secrets or like how have you come about these? Is, is this through your your kind of own learning or just general? I mean, obviously you've been running the business for thirteen years, right? So there's a lot of experience there. Yeah, so personal experience, but also our customers are SaaS vendors. So we have, uh, you know, we have 400 customers globally and the majority of those are SaaS vendors. And obviously I'm founder to founder conversations all the time because we're dealing with growth to scale up stage um, SaaS vendors that are often, you know, we're still dealing with kind of founder led organizations but or founder decision makers. So those relationships, by their very nature, you end up talking about um, the things that are working, but also not working. <laughs> what's going well is not what's not going well. So, yeah, a lot of experience, but also because our customers are all SaaS vendors. Um, I think one of the things that we learned very, very early on when we did our Series A and that the first secret really is, um, is that oh God, people talk about product market fit, right, all the time. Um, and the earlier you can find that the better but you know it feels like this thing that people say well like how do you do it um it's it's really hard at the moment the funding environment is pretty tough out there so people want product market fit and traction and a path to profitability right they're three things that so that's a lot of pressure for early stage founders to kind of get those things right but i think if you can prove if you get product market fit right you will get traction and those two things go hand in hand. So it's about being really brave about being narrow. So the narrower you can you can um, make your ideal customer, and the criteria for that, and the more the better you understand the compelling reasons for your customer to buy, and uh, and and their readiness to buy. The more you can narrow that down, and uh, the more aggressively you can niche yourself the better chance you have of getting traction. Because once you've won a few customers, if they all look at each other and go, hey, we're the same, um, people will look into your business and say, well, you're for me and your messaging to market will be much clearer. So sometimes early stage, you kind of spray and pray a bit because you just need revenue and you might spread yourself and your team a bit thin into lots of different types of opportunities. But actually that can really be a barrier to traction. And the best way to traction is sometimes be quite brave about going, right, we're going to go after this. And if it doesn't work, then we're going to move quickly, but being super focused. So um, the earlier you do that, the better chance you've got of repeatable. Uh, Crossing the Chasm is a book that everyone should read. And if they haven't read it, just read it. Because, you know, the brave you can be, the early you can be. I think that's 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 where I see a lot of success. Yeah, 100%. And uh, Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. Um, we actually had him on a, a virtual SaaS.com conference uh, which I think is maybe the talk is on, on YouTube, but uh, I think that's a seminal book, uh, if that's the word that I want to use uh, uh, in, in SaaS, more S's. What's, what's, the, what's the second uh, uh, secret there, Sandra? Well, we're a data company <laughs> selling an embedded analytics product to SaaS vendors, so it, it would be remiss of me to not say one of them has to do with metrics and data. Um, the metrics that drive growth... Um, you know, we talk about North Stars and you hear this, this North Star thing. And sometimes people have all these OKRs and will have 20 measures that they measure their business on or one North Star metric. Um, but if you're not constantly questioning whether that is actually the thing that is driving your growth and understanding that core metric and challenging that, you know, is it vanity? If you've got a metric that you're all kind of running after, but is it really the thing that's driving growth? Um it used to be um, B2C and B2B, even like it was usage and user numbers. And when it was lots of growth capital around, that was great. And because it was all about, again, it was more of traction. It was about profitability and sustainability. Now there's a function on focus on traction, but also sustainable growth. So it's all very well going out and 
acquiring tons and tons of customers, but if they churn out of the back and you're constantly having to um, acquire more customers to just maintain and sustain a level of growth, then there's a real challenge. So there's a lot more around um, cost of acquisition and burn ratios now combined, right? And, and looking at things like, I mean, net revenue retention was a really strong metric that we've heard a lot of talk about in the last few years. But for us, you know, when we look at the kind of current market for our SaaS vendors that are looking much more about controlling their costs and, um, and, and, and looking at sustainable growth, then I think there is a, a, a much greater focus less on user numbers and usage, but on things like those net revenue retentions being a real North Star metric. So are we winning, keeping and growing what we've got and, and trying to get that, you know, well over 100 percent? And really, you need to be aiming for 110 to be in a good place. So I think it's just being clear on what the market as well from an investment community needs, but you as a business, sustainable growth. So real clarity and not just sticking to a North Star metric that you think is the one that's right for you, really. Can, can I can I ask, you probably mentioned some of them like uh, NRR, but, you know, what are the metrics that you're tracking right now? And I imagine maybe, uh, again, because, uh, and sorry if I keep saying that you've been in business for 13 years, but I imagine in the early days you're kind of tracking like uh, slightly different from what you're looking at now. Uh, what, what are the metrics that are important to pan intelligence at the moment? So the average revenue per account, actually, which is a sort of subset of net revenue retention. So we have like a license numbers to or like, like user numbers in some, but for us, it's like license numbers and average revenue per account. And seeing that kind of those two things and how they correlate um, against each other really gives us a sense of whether we're actually winning higher value customers that are growing at a faster rate. So are we continuing to um, to expand um, the value um, of our product with our customers? That, that's a real focus for us. I mean, there's always a focus on ARR, right? But that is a, a function of what you win and what you retain. But I think, uh, you know, making sure that you're not just winning customers and your order value is going down, you know, this this is average average revenue per per customer um, at point of acquisition, um, but also um, as as they as they grow through their life cycle with you, um, and we have a usage model, so uh, essentially land and expand. So as they grow, we should grow with them. Uh, another thing that's really important to us is that ideal customer profile. So we have 10 characteristics on what looks like a good customer. If they don't fit those, they don't go into the funnel constantly making sure that we're looking and whilst that isn't a measure it's actually something that we use to measure the quality of our pipeline um so if the score what we call our icp score if our icp score is going up then we know the quality of our pipeline will go up because we're constantly kind of attracting good fit ideal customers into our pipeline that we know will convert and then grow so we're very obsessive over our ideal customer profile score and then meeting that metric and that's going to be going in the right direction very cool. Thanks for, for sharing that. What's secret number three? Yeah, so um, we, uh, before the pandemic, we thought international expansion me, meant that I might need to go and be abroad for six months of the year because everyone said that, you know, if a CEO or as a founder, if you don't go out to the US, you won't, you won't make it, right? That was the thing that was said. We raised our money, the pandemic happened, the barriers to entry came down and you were suddenly doing Teams calls or uh, Zoom calls all over the world and people didn't worry about where you are. Um so we thought we had to use some of our capital to kind of really physically be in market a lot more. But actually, through the pandemic, we were able to grow our presence in North America without actually having to physically be there. And that's continued um, as we've come out of the other side. That hasn't been, 
you know, and we went over to, you know, we've been over to America several times, obviously, since the pandemic. And we've gone into places like Boston, San Francisco. And, you know, people have said, oh, do you mind if we do a Teams meeting? You find yourself sat in a, uh, in a an office like an AWS startup loft doing a Teams meeting with somebody that's in the same city as you because they're just not they're not worried about meeting you face to face. So I think that the, the second one is thinking about seizing those global opportunities faster and not believing that the barriers to entering those markets are about physical presence because that has changed radically. So I think people can think international much earlier in their growth journey than perhaps they used to do. And there are lots of very capital efficient, cost effective ways to do that now, where the cost of acquisition is much lower than it used to be. So I, I think testing a market quickly early in your growth can help you to tap into maybe a faster growing market than maybe your your home territory. Um, so not relying on we're in the UK here and uh, you know, the UK is bottom of the G7, bottom of the G G20. We're not exactly um, smashing growth out of the park. So you need to be making sure you're you're in markets where you can piggyback on the growth in those markets and not thinking you have to be there to do it. Super interesting. Um, and I don't want to necessarily re repeat uh, uh, everything you said there, but certainly I can remember because obviously we've had a lot of European SaaS founders on the podcast. We've got a lot of Americans, but a lot of uh, Europeans as well. And it typically, let's say pre-COVID, it used to be that you'd have to at least get to Series A before you start to think about the US and then the investors would start saying, okay, you've got to start thinking about the US and then you as the founder would have to move to you know, either East Coast or West Coast and there would be the challenges around that and you know, getting, getting set up, et cetera. But that was the, I guess, almost like the playbook, right? Um, uh, and the world has changed. Uh, you, you know, kind of post-COVID did change the world, um, you know, despite it being a, a, an awful thing. But, you know, some in places, uh, I guess, for the better, as you say, like, you know, do we always need to hop on a plane to have that face-to-face? -face? I think there, there is, um, and we see it ourselves a lot with SaaS stock, I think, like, certainly uh, there are moments where we should be doing a bit more face-to-face -face stuff. Um, uh, but, like, it, it doesn't happen. Like, the majority of our business is run you know, via Zoom calls, right, and from, from a sales perspective. And, uh, you know, why can't everybody do that? So it's very, very efficient. So great to see that, yeah, as you say, just the barriers are, are lower now to, to going international. And, and so what, what is secret number four? Yeah, so providing real-time insights, which is clearly um, an area that I'd be remiss not to talk about because, yeah, again, we're in the business of data. But for the SaaS founders that I work with, the ones that seem to be um, uh, leaning into the current challenge, which is of hybrid working. And whilst we've had a lot of hybrid working in the sector, it's it's accelerated again post-COVID. So commercial teams are remote in the way that development teams were. And we don't have as much of that visibility of where people are sort of spending their time. And are you sure they're focusing on the right areas to drive success for the business? So, yes, we've got visibility of things like core metrics and, you know, whether it's, you know, um, the targets or objectives that we've set those people and we can see that. But actually, it's also where people are spending their time. And I know time recording and timesheets are probably one of the least <laughs> least liked interventions in any organization but I'm seeing an adoption of that across the whole organization now where there's a lot more visibility and accountability at an individual or team level for the focus of resources and where people are spending their time to make sure that in this hybrid world people aren't sort of going off in a tangent in a direction where actually it doesn't align with the strategy or the, or the purpose of the business so that we can quickly sort of bring people back on track. And I think that's really important, especially when you need to remain kind of really agile in that growth stage when you're testing and validating your product market fit. 
So it's important that we just get comfortable with being able to observe um, and therefore um, better manage the, the resources uh, in the directions we need them in the business. And, and, and I think it can be a hard conversation, but it's absolutely the right one to have. So, um, and it's, so it's not about OKRs, it is about where people are spending the time, I think, um, very simply. Um, uh, moving back to <laughs> um, old school alliances is my, is my fifth one. Um, so it's interesting. There's been a lot of talk about tech partnerships over the last few years. So you mentioned AWS and I mentioned Snowflake. And they're great for building kind of bundled solutions with a larger brand where you can leverage their kind of customer base or their kind of branding market. That can be really useful. But I'm seeing a move back towards what I call reseller channels. So as SaaS vendors are starting to look at their overheads and looking at kind of how they reduce that cost of acquisition, how they scale their teams, reseller channels can be fantastic because you can leverage those sales engines and those sales organizations to accelerate your go-to-market and but sharing that revenue with those partners and leverage their teams and leverage their um, experience and knowledge of a market or relationships in market. So I think technology partnerships are here to stay. So in the data world that I'm in, we can't operate without a data warehouse provider. We can't operate without a cloud provider. So we have to have those as technology partnerships, but actually as go-to-market alliances like resellers. So for us, those would be data consultancies, um, data um, uh, BI consultancies that actually um, are, have have a remit to deliver a, a solution to a problem, um, and it can be a really effective way to kind of expand your sales operation uh, without needing a load of capital. So I think I think it's about leveraging other people's networks to accelerate your go to market without needing the capital to do it. So that's definitely a movement I'm seeing. Um, and I think the last one, which really leans into the noise that we're hearing a lot at the moment, is there's a friction for any SaaS business about core cool product and then chasing um, chasing a new hype cycle and, and fearing of being left behind or fear of being left behind. And, and, and nobody can do anything without hearing about AI right now. Okay, It's just absolutely everywhere. Um, so it's really important that a SaaS vendor is always balancing this decision between core roadmap um, for customers, customer-driven requirements, but also keeping an eye on the market and the competition and making sure that um, they do enough to make sure that they're checking and validating whether that is right for them to be prioritising now, but not chasing that in, uh, uh, in, in, in the absence of actually delivering what the customers actually need today. And it's always a friction. Every SaaS vendor will know this. But it's interesting. I'm seeing a bit of a shift at the moment for investors really pushing their SaaS businesses to, to, you know, adopt sort of AI, not really knowing what that means. And I think SaaS businesses kind of go, we've got, a, you know, we've got a chat function. Is that AI? You know, what is it? What do we mean by this? And I think um, always stick with your core roadmap and what your customers need, because if you can't retain your customers, then you're in that kind of leaky bucket scenario. So customers first, but there has to be always an, an eye into the market. And certainly for us, um, We've got a causal AI engine, which is not um, not always fully understood by the market. So we need to educate the market better on what that means and and how that will drive value from them. Um, but it's making sure that you're clear on what it is your customers will value in this AI hype. Is there something in there that you can offer today that will actually give them give them a window into this world that they're hearing about, but they don't know how to access? And for us, that's all about making um, models, machine learning models, observable, explainable, auditable, 
non-black box so that a non-data scientist, a non-technical person can look at what a model is doing, understand it and inform it. And causal AI is about being able to give that kind of domain expert the power to inform the model in a way that says, actually, you're missing this data that could be really important to making that more predictive and making sure that that model is actually driving real value. Um, and equally, we need to be very careful about the data that we have around its bias and the ethics of the use of it. So observable and explainable AI that can be used by non-technical people, so human-centric AI, as I call it, put the human at the centre, that's what causal AI is, and we we have a we have an engine that enables that. So we can be part of this story, but at the end of the day, 90% of our customers still use us for what happened yesterday and what happens today, reporting and dashboards. So they like this idea of predictive, but what are people using? They're wanting a report and they're wanting a visualization, really. That's most most of the use case. Cool. Very good. Well, thanks for sharing those six secrets. I, I, I love all of them, and uh, I think it's going to be super valuable for the audience. Uh, we're going to move into the, <clears throat> the quickish fire round uh, now, Sandra. So really you're ready to go uh, with this one. Um, <clears throat> what one thing has moved the needle the most for you in your career? Uh, having kids. Uh, so having kids was the trigger I needed to take the brave step to go and build my own business for the first time, give me the flexibility and, and courage to do it, definitely. Very cool. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, shy bones, getting out. It's my mum. You don't know if you don't ask, and it's a good old northern phrase as well. But essentially, like uh, if, you, if you if you spend too much time worrying about um, whether someone's going to say no to you, then you'll probably get nowhere. So you just go and ask. There we go. And, and for those, uh, so we have a global audience, shy bones, getting out. Shy uh, bends. Shy bends. Bends. Shy bends. So it's... Um, so it's shy kids get nothing. Okay. So if you All don't right. ask, you don't get really. There we go. I mean. shy, shy burns getting out. Okay, very cool. Um, the biggest failure you've made a lesson learned? I've made lots of failures, too many, um, but we all do. And if you don't, then you don't grow. So product direction, go to market, new hires. There's been some investment decisions that haven't been great, I'll be honest with you. Um, where I have failed, if I reflect on all of those failures, it's where I've not trusted my instincts because usually at the time that I was hiring somebody or looking at a strategy I had a niggle or a doubt and um, usually they tend to be true uh, so listening to my instincts and trusting myself is probably my biggest learning and just making sure that I, I, I do that it's always important to speak to others get their view and opinions but actually um, if you're not fundamentally trusting yourself as a, a founder and a leader in a business then that can be a, a path to the wrong direction. Uh, hardest thing about being a female founder in SAS? Uh, not letting it get into your head. Uh, lack of diversity can make you uh, feel like it's a bit of a lonely place in the space. It, most of the meetings I have are they're just men. So um, I'm selling to SaaS vendors. Most SaaS founders are men. So most most meetings I'm in uh, are men. So it's making sure that you don't see that or allow that to be a barrier. Um, and actually flipping it on its head, the best thing you do is look at it and say, hey, well, I am the only woman in the room. I'm memorable. <laughs> um, there's an opportunity here for me to get noticed and, and and therefore you have to be quite bold in pushing your personal brand and, and see it as an opportunity because it's it's sometimes not a bad thing when you're you're a rarity. No, definitely. Um, what does your daily routine look like? Um, well, I, I don't think any founder I know isn't context switching ridiculously. My diary is a literally a box of skittles or a bag of skittles so i color code every type of meeting that i have from prospect meetings one-to-ones customer meetings investor meetings you name it um, i've just come out of doing my half year kickoff with the whole company straight into this meeting so 
contact switching um, is is just part of the daily routine. And um, I think the key to that is planning and um, and and giving yourself enough time that before you go from one to the next, you can at least get your head in the right zone. Um, so everyone's back to back these days, especially with with online meetings. So giving yourself the best chance of knowing what headspace you need to be in is 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 key, I think. And, co- and contact switching is pretty exhausting, I find, like um, pretty knackered at the end of the day. Is there anything that you do to kind of like decompress or to kind of help recover for the next day? Uh, I like a glass of wine, uh, like most people. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I think there's, as a founder, you, you, it is relentless. It, that's just part of the job, right? It's, it's, it's hard work. It's tiring. You do it because you love it. Um, none of us are particularly good at self-care in my experience. You know, we start, we start doing some exercise and then we fall off the wagon. You know, we start a health kick. I think a lot of people are like that. Those that can manage to maintain that, brilliant. Respect to them, but I've never been able to. Reading a book, um, those sorts of things. But honestly, I tend to be pretty, um, just crack on. <laughs> it's mindset most of it, actually. It's just, you know, loving what you do is is as important as anything. But but no, I, I don't have a secret source for that. None at all. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, uh, Sandra, thanks so much for being on the, the podcast today. If people want to reach out to you, ask you any questions, female founders, male founders, SaaS companies, uh, where can they find you online and where can they find Pan Intelligence also? Yeah, so I'm an absolute lover of LinkedIn. So you you message me on LinkedIn, I absolutely guarantee I will personally reply to you. So anybody that listens to this, just drop me a message on LinkedIn. Say you heard me on this podcast. I'll reply whether you just want a quick chat about being a SaaS founder, being a female founder or about embedded analytics in your platform. Any of those things, just reach to me on LinkedIn. Pan Intelligence, just Type it into Google. You'll find all our channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, website. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best place for me directly. And, and, and please do reach out because I will reply. And, and brownie points and discount on pan intelligence. If anyone does the subject line, shy bands getting out. Uh, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Anybody puts subject line, shy bands getting out, I, I will guarantee a discount on price book. I won't say how much, but yes. <laughs> very cool well Zandra thanks so much for uh, being a great guest on the show um, yeah really appreciate it and uh, uh, yeah really enjoyed this episode so thank you so much Sandra Moore uh, CEO of uh, Pan Intelligence you star Alex thank you thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SAS Revolution show I hope you enjoyed it and if you learned something from it check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDOC conferences around the world. Want exclusive SAS content and actionable insights to grow your SAS? Join our community of over 36,000 SAS founders at sasdoc.com.